Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamometrics and your host. Shantara is an award-winning policy professional and serial entrepreneur with over 15 years of experience leading work in the areas of government affairs, healthcare access, economic and workforce development, environmental sustainability, city planning, and international affairs. Her current leadership includes her roles as the founder of Policy Grounds Consulting, a strategic management firm working at the intersection of public policy, organizational effectiveness, and placemaking, the co-founder and chief strategy officer for Civic Eagle, a tech company building policy intelligence software that automates state and federal legislative tracking, and as the co-founder of Fearless Commerce, a publication and platform focused on elevating Black women business owners. Prior to going full-time in her business ventures, Chantere was appointed by Governor Mark Dayton as the Commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development, where she led a team of 1,300 public servants with an annual budget of over $600 million. While at the Department of Employment and Economic Development, she played a critical role in shaping the lives of everyday Minnesotans by spearheading the state's investment in inclusive economic growth and operational excellence. Shantara has also served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Governor Mark Dayton, Policy Director for Fresh Energy, Government Relations Manager for Health Partners, and City Planner for the City of St. Paul. Shantara has a strong commitment to serving in the community. She is currently a member of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis Community Advisory Committee, Minnesota Public Radio, Board of Trustee, Great North Labs Advisor, and member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, Inc., a global sorority grounded in servant leadership. To ensure access to educational opportunities, Hardy co-founded and co-directs the Fatima Kinshasa Memorial Fund and the Pioneer Scholars Award, both at The Ohio State University. Born and raised in Youngstown, Ohio, Shantara holds a Bachelor of Science in Consumer Affairs from The Ohio State University and a Master of Urban and Regional Planning from the State University of New York at Buffalo School of Architecture and Planning. Our conversation covers national, state, and local policies for addressing systemic racism, the importance of strong leadership for implementing those policies, and how software companies like Dynamometrics and Civic Eagle address social justice challenges in COVID. And now, my conversation with Shantara. All right. Today, we on, on Ahead of the Curve, we have Shantara Hardy. She's co-founder and chief strategy officer at Civic Eagle, um, one of the, the co-portfolio companies of M25 that is shared with Dynamo. That's where I met Shantara, and uh, she's fantastic, and I appreciate you, Shantara, coming on to Ahead of the Curve. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be amongst family, the M25 family, so... Wonderful to talk to you this morning. Fantastic. So on the front end here, um, for listeners, maybe we can just unpack kind of who you are, your background, um, some of the history of, of, of your current role and some of the initiatives you're working on right now. Absolutely. Um, we only have an hour, so I'll give the Cliff Notes version of, of my journey I, as you stated, am the uh, one of the wonderful um, co-founders of Civic Eagle. With respect to kind of my journey, just to, in a nutshell, I say I work at the intersection of public policy and placemaking. And so I have a background that spans um, over, over 20 years 
um, starting out in the Ohio House of Representatives as a legislative assistant and navigating to uh, Minnesota as a city planner focused on transportation, economic and business development, and moving into a role as a in-house lobbyist with a healthcare company, and then into another lobbyist role for an environmental nonprofit. And eventually before coming full-time into true entrepreneurship, I was in the executive branch here in the state of Minnesota as the deputy chief of staff in the governor's office for Mark Dayton and Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith. And then I moved into the role as state commissioner for the Department of Employment and Economic Development. So my journey to Civic Ego, um, in addition to starting Civic Ego, I started two other companies. Um, One is called Policy Grounds Consulting, and that's my sole uh, strategy firm that I do a lot of um, strategic consulting, facilitation, crisis management, uh, business development, and my other company, which is called Fearless Commerce, which I co-founded with the amazing Camille Thomas, and it is focused on elevating Black women business owners. So happy to be here, happy to have a conversation with you and be a part of this journey. Amazing. Like what an amazing world of work that you're in and amazing experience. I'd love to, I'd love to hear more. Like they're like, I want to dive in on a bunch of those already, like the, the specific initiatives. So Civic Eagle, that's the company that I know that you're part of and co-founder. Can we learn more about what Civic Eagle does, but also those other initiatives that you just mentioned? Can we get kind of like the the 30,000 foot on those specific initiatives, like how you're spending your time? Absolutely. So a bit about Civic Ego, as I mentioned, I'm one of the co-founders. So my other co-founder, Damola, who is based in New York and is a amazing uh, CEO for Civic Ego, who comes to the position with experience in finance and experience as also um kind of the brains behind putting Civic Eagle together. And my other co-founder, Yemi, who also has policy experience, but is just an amazing designer, UX, the brand behind Civic Eagle is her brains. And so we started Civic Eagle really focused on how do we bring policy to the forefront in a transparent way. And our tool that we have today, which is called InView, is our legislative intelligence software solution that provides access to be able to automatically discover legislation and seamlessly collaborate with other stakeholders. Our customers are nonprofit from nonprofit organizations to large enterprises um, throughout the country. And so we've built our software to be able to power at this time state legislatures in, in upcoming all 50 states and also in Congress. And so we are focused on creating the most trusted and and just powerful policy management tool to be able to help organizations take policy this, to the next level. So that's Civic Ego. It's amazing. I, I love that company. I love like the, my background is in federal, state, and local policy also, right? So it's like yeah. having having a tool, like when I, when I met you in Damala and learned about what Civic Eagle was doing. It was was just an exciting moment because like my understanding is that I can, I can then with your product, I can then access 
all the policies that are that are basically like on the forefront, right? Like what's coming down the pike in terms of policy and get that information. Like, let's say if I want a local or a state initiative in my state, but another state is doing it, for example, if I want some best language or something like that, is that a way that it gets leveraged? Is that right? So we provide access to policy that's, to your point, moving through state legislatures. And so Mm -hmm. when a state legislature is in session, we are providing our customers with direct access to that policy as it moves through different committees within that legislature. And so to your point, that if you're in Michigan and you're interested in some dynamic policy that's moving in Minnesota and you subscribe to our um, monthly subscription to get access to our platform, you would be able to do a search depending on the topic that you're interested in to see if there is a bill moving in um, in Minnesota. I, I often call it, you know, sophisticated R and D. You know, you rip off and deploy. Why recreate the will if there's good policy moving? And so that is essentially, as you outline, um, one of the ways that you can use our tool. And the other way I'll just say government affairs, government relations is really focused on collaborating with others in order to move policy forward. Oftentimes, do you have a policy that moves forward by itself? And so our tool allows for you to collaborate with individuals within your organization and also collaborate with um, other stakeholders outside of your organization. Right. And, and it's like, it's, it's just such a unique moment to be in, in your role. Like I have all these, these questions down the line of like, you're based in Minneapolis, correct? We, we are. I sit right now in St. Paul and I would be remiss to not give love to St. Paul. Um, (laughs) So yeah, so we are a, we're a Minnesota based company. However, I will say that we are, we have, since we started Civic Eagle in 2015, have always been a remote first company. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, on that note, like we've gone fully remote since COVID has come in and it has changed, it's totally changed the way that we do our company in terms of it's operationally amazing to be fully remote. So <laughs> I'm on board We're now. We're going to give any tips. We had Jamal actually put together an amazing medium post. So if you search for us, um, giving some good tips on the best ways to work remotely. Um, it's been in our DNA since we started and, and there's a, there's a right way to do it. And it's always learning because at the end of the day, as you build your team, you bring in humans that have different wants, needs, and experiences. And so how do you make sure that you evolve a company to, um, surface transparency, clear communication, and the ability to just, collaborate in a way that people feel as though that they're bringing all of their narrative and neurons to the table to truly impact um, whatever your mission is of your company. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm, we're, we're loving it. Like it's, it's working so well. And in, in both you and Damola, when I met you guys, we're, we're talking about the, the values of remoteness. And then COVID somewhat forced my <laughs> hand, you know? It's one of those things. It's like policy. I was telling somebody I can list, you know, 10 pieces of legislation as I was a lobbyist that I said, oh, that will never pass. In the last five months, I went seeing policy go from from never to now in a matter of days. And so here we Mm -hmm. go. (laughs) 
it's so amazing how many how quickly different things are galvanizing given our situation right now. So the so the thread that I was starting on there though is like this unique position, like you have this great company, Civic Eagle, you have this great product. And me being a policy person, the way I think about using it is how do I search generally across all these different states and local, like, does it go into local policy? I guess that's a question I should start with. Like Lansing, for example, is doing, they're putting up in front of their council, uh, I think it's tonight, a potential 50% budget cut to police. And then they're talking about redistributing those resources to different social services as a result of like the Black Lives Matter movement right now. Mm -hmm. It's like Mm -hmm. horrible stuff, right? Absolutely. Does that come through the platform or... We, we haven't got there yet. If there's amazing investors out there that want to get us to that level, the, 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 the thing, you see that plug I put in there. The thing is, we're right now focused on state legislature and, and Congress. And outside of just resources, from a financing perspective, if you step back and look at the United States, we have about 400,000 jurisdictions. Yeah, think wow. about townships, cities, counties, and states, and, and they're all moving policy forward. They all do it in a different way. And many of them may not have a, have jumped on, probably now since coronavirus, to the place of having their policies, their ordinances readily available. And so that's the next journey for Civic Eagle to go at that local level. I mean, politics is local and we know that and policy is local. And that's where people truly see it when they walk outside their door. And so that's a next part of our roadmap is to think about how we connect to, to local policy. I mean, because case in point of what you said, those are life-changing decisions. And if you're not aware of them, if you're not able to um, use your voice to impact them, they can have devastating impacts on your your household and if you own a business on your company. Right. Like I was I was speaking to to like your geographic location. Like you have this policy company and you're you're at the center point of this galvanizing, you know, this galvanizing social justice movement across the country. Like it's gotta just set off so many thoughts in terms of like how do you I mean, that's what it's doing to me as I think about it. It's like, how do we get like the folks that are making the progress at the local level? Because it seems like that's where it really has to happen. How do we distribute that best, best approach knowledge when it actually gets traction out, right? So that it can get rinsed and repeated. Absolutely. And that's a part of our our future goal, um, because you're right. I mean, for Civic Ego, you know, home base being ground zero as we um, navigate the the awakening and reckoning around racism and, and policing here in Minnesota, that is going to be the very essence of what does the future of um, safety look like? And it's going to come through policy. And so we are swirling here just to make sure that we can keep track. One of the things that we have done at Civic Ego is that we've created, as I mentioned, our tool allows you to collaborate. For the last um, couple of months, we actually have been giving access for free to our platform, to organizations. And one of the the um, things that we've done is created teams because within our platform, you can create teams. And so we've created a police reform and accountability team. 
And individuals can sign up to be a part of that team to join us in tracking police reform and accountability policy throughout the United States. And so um, you're able to see either similarities, there's policies around chokeholds, there's policies around being required to live with where you police. So a number of different policies that are moving that you're seeing that are similar in different states or just new ideas that are coming from other states. And so we kind of have that worldview at this moment to be able to watch things moving around. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So there is kind of that thing, like you guys are promoting that, the creation of that space. Like if you have, if you're in the platform, you can access all of that. Like that's like a community shared thing. Like how exactly does that work? I want to hear. So that is, that is, that is new. And we're playing around with that. We actually started it first with coronavirus that we created a team and you can just sign up for, to be a part of the civic ego team and get uh, a weekly newsletter of a download of all the policies that are moving at that time around Mm -hmm. coronavirus. And so whenever it was up, it's updated, it's moving, it's past by both chambers and sent to the governor's desk, we would have that information. And so that is kind of the next frontier for us. As I mentioned, government relations is about relationships and about collaborating. And so we are working to do our part to create this community. And I'll tell you, it's one place um, that I worked in, in insurance, in health insurance and health coverage Government affairs, government relations is one department where competition is second, where lawyers aren't nervous about collusion because collaboration is key. Um, Yes, a policy is going to impact you as an individual company different from your competitors. However, if there is space for collaboration to be able to move the best policy forward, you see that happen a lot. Um, in the government relations space. And so that is kind of what sets our tool apart from others out there is really focused on building on that collaboration and making a space for community to be able to move impactful policy forward. I love it. I love it. This is, this is like, these are all the things that I wanted to talk about when I first met you and we're getting to do it this way. This is fun. (laughs) And there's such kind of nerds. I said, oh, policy we, nerds. Yes. Yeah. We're policy. Yeah. Nerds. yeah. <laughs> like I, like I want to just create, like serve up all these softballs for you just to smack, you know, like, <laughs> so it's like, so I think about, uh, so this letter from the CDC came out today, mm-hmm. right? You're a policy person. You're probably listening. You're, you're hearing the things. So it sounds like, you know, 1100 out of, uh, like over a thousand out of 11,000 staff members have signed this letter that basically says there's internal, there's racism internally at the CDC. That's not, so you're not, so you're, you're, you're missing um, this opportunity to use the microphone of the CDC to show how systemic racism is causing a two X likelihood of dying from COVID. If you're a person of color, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So, so take that prep, like take that reality. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, what are the actual policies that would undo that, right? Like maybe there's, maybe there's some, um, you know, staffing issues or whatever and leadership issues and all these other things. But like, as you know, policy is the only thing that undoes things. And so 
my dream is that there's a platform like what you guys ha- have happening where I can say this issue, show me the language, show me like, how would you have it? Right. Mm-hmm. What is the best language that's coming down the pike to address these specific types of issues? Cause that's not just the CDC. That's going to be corporate. That's going to be all these other ways that that same thing is happening in other places. So where do I pool information and get the best language to create policies that systemically undo? Right? So there's a couple things in, in what you just laid out. First, I'll start with, you know, when you think about systemic racism and you unpack that, it is systemic is meaning that it's structurally embedded into the DNA of, of, the, of an organization. And so this thing with the CDC, I, I um, have said over the last two weeks is that many looked out either their TVs or through social media and saw my community here in Minnesota. You saw buildings burning. You saw the response to discrimination and lack of investment and access and brutality related to police, what you have been seeing, and that points to the CDC letter, is the boardrooms are now burning. Because those same practices with respect to not listening to the experiences of your staff of color to be able to move good policy forward And the reckoning is happening. Mm -hmm. And we are in this moment where organizations who may have a mission that's for social good have individuals. Because remember, organizations are made up of individuals. And so, yes, with respect to the work that we're doing, and you'll see government will have a role in making changes within organizations that get to systemic racism. But I would be remiss to not say that it's mindsets and methods that also have to change. And if that doesn't happen, you can pass whatever policy that you want. And if the individuals that are leading does not provide a space either at the table or a space to build a new table, then you will continue to have these this callous overlap of the same thing happening over and over again, where you see um, individuals held back based on race, based on disability, based on geography, based on gender. And so that is what you're seeing. And as you said, you're, you're seeing a number of organizations publicly have to navigate their boardrooms, so to speak, being burned Their staffers are lifting up this behavior that has prevented them from being the best that they can be. And I'll just lastly say, you know, we know this as tech companies, when you have diverse voices in the room, your product and your service is more successful. As we think about the coronavirus and we think about who's mostly impacted, their low wealth and at most times, communities of color. And if you have this letter coming out where individuals that may have the same experiences as as those individuals that are being disproportionately impacted and they're not being heard, you're missing an opportunity as as the nation's leader 
um, in telling us about the, the way to go forward with respect to our health, the CDC, you're missing out on the opportunity to pass policy that will speak to those communities. I mean, you have experts within your organization that can help you be able to move good policy forward. Why are you not listening to them? Amplify, right? Amplify. Absolutely. Amplify. Absolutely. The galvanization of the Black Lives Matter movement has been a very powerful thing for me personally, seeing it unfold, waking me up in so many different ways. You know, how COVID has, you know, being a policy wonk and like, okay, you know, the civil rights movement, for example, we have some good laws and some good policies that exist, but clearly it's not enough, right? And so to your point about about leadership and like how do you actually genuinely genuinely get the adoption and like cultural change that's necessary. So how do you actually write policy and law and have like that does the trick, right? So like the legal frameworks in place. So you got that squared away. But how do you actually like follow that up with with the movement of the people where that law gets leveraged in a way that creates the permanent change, right? Right. And just a couple of things. I mean, I want to just uplift what you said with respect to the Black Lives Matter movement, which did not just become incorporated, you know, a month ago. This journey, as you mentioned, from civil rights to many, many young people in the Black community and especially Black women started this, this movement years ago and provided clarity with respect to these these disproportionate issues that were happening in the community, not looking for a space of revenge, looking for equality with respect to access to housing, access to healthcare, access to home ownership. And so you have this opportunity and yes, policy is core. And that's our bread and butter. But I can give you just, you know, two examples. Just just recently, we saw a number of organizations and states call upon their community to celebrate Juneteenth. And that is America's, you know, true independence when Black people were able to gain their independence. And that policy, you know, passed, but there was language right in that policy that basically, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote from the Juneteenth general order that said, you know, freed men are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. Basically, you're free, but you must continue to toil your master's land for wages which they determine. So even though there was freedom, there was not access to even gather to even talk about that new freedom. So that's one example. The other example I'll tell you that many are aware of, the GI Bill. That was a clear bill with respect to one of the tenets of getting access to housing. And when Black people came back from the war, they couldn't get access to that bill. And so the policy was passed, but methods around redlining, discriminatory practices in deeds and and other covenants 
prevented mm. Black people from getting access to the very clear policy that was passed in order to be able to think and celebrate those individuals that risked their life to go to war. And so it's what I said. It's, it's, it's making sure, one, that you have the right people at the table negotiating and pushing forward the policy. The idea becomes a policy. The reality of if it works is in the implementation. And so how do you make sure that you have the right people within state agencies and city government and county government within, you know, C-suites that are moving that good policy to a place that it actually has the intent of the idea when it was first put into law. And so those things for me are very important. And for Civic Eagle, it's getting access to that policy, making sure that those who can be a part of moving that policy can be at the table. And the other part of, of my work is making sure that when it, it's implemented, that the mindsets and the methods are there in order to implement it in the way that you have those positive impacts. Absolutely. Implementation, man. Right? Absolutely. Being in a position, like if we can get the, the, the right laws passed, that's a big deal. But having people all the way up from the, the hyper-local all the way up to the state and through the feds that are implementing the policies in a way that shows leadership and execution in a way where it actually unfolds in our society, right? Absolutely. You said it oh, exactly right. That is it. That is it. So one, I want to spend time, like what you just brought is, is really valuable because it's, it's where Dynamo and where my world has spent a lot. Like my policy world is in large part focused on, as you know, property level time series. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what we're dealing with at Dynamo is we have, you know, this historical databases of every single parcel in a city um, or a county and we integrate all those and transform them into the underlying economic metrics and heartbeat of that local economy. And we serve that into a platform so you can actually use it as a collaborative decision support platform with, with nonprofits, neighborhood groups, uh, across departments and government, all that stuff, right? And so a lot of my early training was focused on, I learned everything about, you know, redlining and all the FHA and all these pieces that you just brought up. And just seeing seeing how you could use the financial system to justify basically like you know redlining for for the and maybe you can help me some if i if i don't say it all but effectively redlining was was saying that where where the where the african american community is located we see decreasing property value so it's a bad investment zone mm -hmm. so we put red on the map there and we draw a line around that zone and by default if it was a majority if it was a majority black community, that's what you got, right? Yep. And you couldn't get access to the loans and all the things that you said. And so traditionally, like it was mandated through federal policy that that was a bad investment zone. Absolutely. Right? So I'm a, I'm a housing economist, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, how ever undo that when you have a really difficult way of, of um, if you've mandated no investment effectively or really low level investment, just survival investment. 
from outside private sector, right? All those pieces. Um, how do you expect that to suddenly catapult into being something else? Well, the answer is gentrification, right? But also, I mean, in, but that, you know, the folks that are actually there aren't getting brought up in the process, right? And so to me, there's this massive policy gap now where that justified pushing like expressways and freeways and, you know, disintegrating all these amazing communities, even though as a result, you know, of that redlining that that happened to a lot of African-American communities across the country where you, they just push a freeway through the center of it because it's a low investment zone, mm-hmm. right? All these injustices unfolded. But now we find ourselves where we are today, where you have, you know, whatever it is, 100 years of no investment or 60 or whatever you want to call it, like, a, you know, long enough where there's just still no investment. And I look at Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, her, her goal is to start to try to pull investment back into those areas and have it be equitable and actually help the folks that are there. Right. Yeah. And I think those are the policies that folks are trying to start to figure out. And that's where we're actually relevant. Right. Like Dynamo can actually identify those exact zones identify the specific properties where investment can be drawn to, help the public sector identify their resources so that they can pull private sector investment and, you know, create deals, right? Like economic development deals, community development deals that actually, you know, then help the community. So we're excited about that work, but I see a huge policy gap there. What are the policies that actually start to draw equitable investment back to these zones where there is actual opportunity and opportunity for those communities. So that's, I mean, that topic just, you know, I think about it a lot. <laughs> so you should, you should think about it a lot. And, and I'll, I'll do the, the um, commercial for, for Dynamo. I mean, you guys have built an amazing product that allows for people to see how property values foreclosures, and all of those things that go with investment layer on top of each other. And I'll, I'll tell you, for the, for such a time as this that we're in, God put us on pause <laughs> with yeah. a timeout. And during this timeout, and we got to see how all of these things interact. Mm-hmm. And some for the good and some not for the good. And the product you all have built allows those that are in this investment space to see how all of these things interact. And that holistic look at communities is powerful because if you don't recognize how lack of investment in home ownership for communities leads to a disproportionate amount of renters, leads to Um, No opportunity for generational wealth, which leads to high impact if you have to have need access to public programs. All of these things layer on top of each other. And if you have technology and systems, but also thinking in place within these departments to see how all of these things interact, you're able to drive policy that not only helps that business that decides that they want a physical infrastructure helps them get their back office together, get investment in their products and services. It then also puts them on a path of ownership of owning the building that they're in. And then yeah. going from there 
to entice them to be good stores in the community, to take some of their earnings to invest. You can create that environment. It takes will, skill, and intentionality. And we're so far behind in the not only the Black community and other communities of color in our indigenous communities that we have ripped to the bear the opportunities to be able to create environments where you have that investment that the policies and the dollar amount is going to be big. And that's just the reality of where we are today is investing in business development programs, investing in workforce um, development programs, investing in infrastructure that is going to allow for um, access into ownership. That's right. That's right. And there is such a huge opportunity for for state and local governments. And I mean, the feds are the vehicle, they're delivering the resources. But if, if these programs are done well, you're going to be able to offer um, economic opportunity to historically disinvested in areas to people who live there. With Absolutely. All these- I mean, right? and I, you know, the reality is I, in my role as commissioner, utilizing data from our state demographer, we navigated a future for Minnesota, like many states that show that Minnesota is getting grayer and browner. <laughs> And creating an environment where you're investing in those Minnesotans that are going to their next chapter, that are seasoned, what are you doing to make sure that they are able to live a high quality of life? As demographic shifts change here, how are you making sure that those communities are able to continue this strong investment in this economy because it it doesn't just become, oh, it's the problem of Black people when communities are invested in. No, it becomes a problem of communities, a problem of regions, a problem of states, a problem of the United States. And so there's no flight when it comes to the fallout from disinvestment. There's no flight. You can't you can't run from it. You got it. You got it. So like when we see this in action, when it's working well, it's like you can go so you can use the system to identify the margin. Right. We're Mm -hmm. economists. It's like, where's the actual edge? Right. Where Mm -hmm. things really slip and like values are are, are moving downward or uh, vacancy and blight are moving in or you know, the different issues that unfold in in disinvested areas, right? Abandoned areas where no money is coming in and jobs jobs aren't that accessible. And the capacity of the people is there, but where's the resource, right? So So you can identify those zones relatively easy, but then you, then the nice thing is that you can see the edge, like where does investment begin again? And so you can actually work from the edge if you want, Right. Or work from the center or build a strategy around it. Right. And, and for me, and, and I'll just be clear, because we've used a lot of, of words in, 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 in the negative with disinvestment and and mm-hmm. the like. For me, Dang. I work from a place of assets. And I know for, for my community, the assets, the historical assets of our, our community are strong and contribute to the foundation of all of our communities. And so when you think about 
communities from a standpoint of investment, you know, I learned in my planning background that there is the tipping point. Shout out to uh, my professor, Dr. Taylor at the University at Buffalo, is that you have to make a choice when a, when a community gets to this place of, of tipping how much, how intentional, and for how long you're going to invest to make sure it tips the right way. Because once a community tips into a place where you have a downward spiral, it's very hard to turn it around. It's not impossible. It's not impossible if you are starting from a place of empathy with the people and from a place of assets, you can be able to turn that community around. Mm -hmm. But you have to do something. You know, for many of our communities, for a while, we've admired the problem or we haven't started from a place of empathy. And even if we, when we, when we do that and have done that from not a place of empathy, we've made investments or moved policy because they worked somewhere else and we're dumbfounded as to why they don't work in that community. Well, you did start with understanding and appreciating the gifts of that community to be able to build from there to make sure you understand what they need in order to move their lives into a better overall quality. Yeah, that's fantastic, Shantara. And there's and there's like like how do you have those community conversations to identify the assets of that community that they want to leverage? Like get into some of the placemaking language, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. And and that's what we found when this thing's working. You can go in and you have it can be fully open. So your community development corporations, your different nonprofits, everybody's got access. It can be all the way open, so anyone can have access. You can jump on, and then in your community conversations, in your meetings, the data, like if, if things, you know, if things go sideways, or if you want to have a, if you want to have a conversation about a specific thing, you can zoom into that spot, get all the data about that spot, and start to have an objective conversation about the realities of what the data says, the underlying, and then build off of that in your conversation. And where do you want to go? Given this is where we're at. Absolutely. Right? And and I think that's the power of the, the tool that you all have created, the power of the tool that Civic Eagle has created, is getting right to the data as best you can to be able to have a grounding of the conversation. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, takes time and it takes growth mindset sitting around the table that I want to hear from you because what I am trying to do is move forward. And so how can we make sure one that we're talking the same language and that shared understanding leads to us agreeing on that future, that future state and us having the foresight to be able to project out what is it that we want to see within our, within our community? Because the thing I'll say about this is that investment is about ownership. And how do you create an environment where community members have a stake in that ownership in the present and in the future? Yeah. Yeah. And something I say about community development and economic development, it's like, it's a block and tackle type of sport, mm-hmm. right? You get your hands in there if you're going to get it done and get it done right. Right. And so, you know, you can work these meetings and have, have a conversation about the realities of the situation but then once you identify a path forward and you want to draw investment and grow and build something, then then you actually have to build a, a pro forma and a profile of the opportunity. 
And that's the other side of it, right? So it's like, okay, now we got to draw on the resource, work with whether it's the local unit of government or these resources coming from the feds through the state down to the local. Maybe we want to draw on investors, whatever we do to get a deal together, right? Absolutely. And make sure that you continue that commitment of engagement. And so when you have a commitment of engagement and education, and as you go through whatever process you lay out to bring that investment idea to reality, then it becomes so much better on the other end that you don't just spring that investment, even though you had one or two conversations with community, that you keep them in the driver's seat with you to move things forward. And that's where sometimes communities with respect to taking an idea to the next level fall short mm-hmm. and miss the opportunity to have that ownership stake go all the way past the ribbon cutting, so to speak. Yeah. Like actually start to have some case studies of success when it when you go all in and you make those investments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I feel like those stories, like, you know, if local policy moves to the point where those kinds of things are happening in economic development and states are innovative enough to actually start to target resources into very specific opportunity zones, like the zones that have, people have not been able, they have great assets, but they haven't been able to access resources to grow and flourish their local economy, right? Yeah. So if those, are, like my sense is like, if you can design actually like mandate programs that like are designed to make those investments happen, there's going to be amazing success stories. Right. Absolutely. You have to be yeah. for the long haul because as we talked about at the top of the hour, systemic, these are systemic issues that have gone for so long and you have to be in it for the long haul, if you are looking to truly dismantle, I mean, it's many of these areas of, of housing, of healthcare are like an onion. Once you start pilling and you see the negativity that it's caused, the disinvestment, and you keep pilling and you see how everything is just all connected, that dismantling can't happen overnight. You have to be in it for the long haul and have commitment. And you have to also believe, as I said earlier, that it's for the greater good because you'll show up differently when you see that this investment is not just for that census tract or that zip code, that it's for the greater good in the future. I mean, the thing I'll say from that asset approach is that you never know within that community if you provide an environment to thrive where that next dynamo CEO will come from, you know? You never know where that innovation will come from for individuals to be able to thrive in their community. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. This is this is fantastic. I appreciate your insight so much. One one that I want to ask you about because this is one that that was like uh, kind of exciting for me to see as like a shot over the bow. So Biden's housing plan in it, there's like an uncapping of the voucher program. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Have you I haven't seen it? it. I haven't seen it. So, I mean, do you know about, you know about the housing voucher program? Like I think it's like one in three or something like that, like actually gets 
basically rental assistance from the federal yeah, government? Yeah, the Section 8 program, um, yes. the, the on-the-ground term for it, yes. Yeah, and so uh, so what I've what I've heard for years is that, you know, like, there's so much demand, but it's just there's not enough resources in the pot to help folks actually have r- rental support, mm-hmm. right? You're so embedded in, in the policy space. Like, I'm really curious about your thoughts on that, just be, like that proposal in general. Absolutely. And as I said, I haven't seen his plan um, in particular. I'll say from a general perspective, when you think about the the Section 8 program, you have to think about it from a supply and demand perspective. As you said, the demand is high, but supply of housing is an issue that we have throughout the United States, especially housing that's affordable. I'll say that in in clear, very clear terms. And so you have that dynamic. And so, yes, fully funding it will be very, very helpful. If I recall um, in Minneapolis, our public housing wait list for Section A, I think we're at about two years or something to be on the wait list. And so um, being able to fully fund it um, is, is one thing. So it's, it's that remember that, that thing around that, that holistic look at something. So this is a policy where, um, it's not just putting the money in the pod. It's also, um, going to, you know, to the friends at, at HUD and EDA and making sure there's investments in actually constructing new homes, renovating other homes and to get access to, housing. And then it's also in the onset when you're looking at housing for those who want rental assistance, if you're not thinking about the life cycle of a person as they navigate through access to housing from going from, you know, a renter to moving to, you know, ownership, if they so choose to do that, that ecosystem view is so important. So yes, fully funding it will really help but you can't forget about the supply of the actual infrastructure because that's a that's an issue in many communities is that the actual units aren't there. The other thing I'll say is making sure that um, what has happened for many who get access to Section 8 vouchers is that because you don't have that supply, they have to go further out from the city center and many of them may not have access to reliable transportation. And so when you are not thinking holistically, you may give someone an opportunity to access a great home. However, from an economics perspective, they not may not be able to access employment yeah. because they don't have transportation. And so making sure that these lens of opportunity are on the table as you're making these policy decisions, or you may just create a whole other issue on the back end. Totally. By pushing I mean, the policy forward. Truly it's because it's truly systemic, right? Like, like this is, this is the, this is like as a public policy wonk, like this is what I stress about is we have a galvan, we're, we're galvanizing on an approach to end systemic racism. But my sense is, even if we're fully in earnest and we attack every law that 
could help and slowly incrementally get us there, it's probably like three, four generations out before we're actually at some level of, of like, okay, we're all like starting from an equal footing, right? Like it's, it's going to take a long time of undoing, right? And, and so minute, we got to be committed. <laughs> yeah, I hope. It's, like, it's going to be a long game, man. It's like a total marathon. And, and, and so I think about like, I look at housing policy, I'm like, okay, like you give the vouchers to everyone, like that's a starting point on the house. And, and I want to make sure that with respect, as we think about, you know, racism, like one, I hope we're truly there to confront this and confront it in a way to understand the devastation of the livelihood of an entire population, first and foremost, and that we continue down this path. You know, we say in technology this, that version one is better than version none. So start. We got to start. I mean, it's not optional. If we want to live in an environment where we truly can live the words of, you know, uh, justice for all. And so we got to start. And we, as I said, we got to be committed to the long haul and dismantling the the barriers to getting access to so many things that many other Americans have had the privilege to access. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so thankful to have your policy insight on all this because I just, I, you know, being a public policy person, I, I look at it and I'm like, because you're, you know, you're a policy professional too, public policy professional, you know, these things. It's like, education reform, corrections reform, police reform, uh, housing reform, like all these like major pillars of public policy that all need to just get dissected. (laughs) They they do. They do. And, and the thing that, you know, for a lot of it, as I said, it's methods and mindsets. Uh, Mm -hmm. Policy is a strong step, first step and step forward. And, if we do it from a place of empathy, it doesn't have to be that hard because people know what they need. Let's not, let's not make this as like advanced rocket science. Like people know what they need. And so how are you making sure that they are part of the process from a leadership perspective and from an advocacy perspective? And that can speed up the timeline, I guarantee. Ah, it's awesome. And your, your company is awesome in working towards that. So I'm just, I'm very thankful for what you guys are putting your energy to over there at Civic Eagle. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shantara. Thank you for I having that, um, me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm so thankful. Um, as as COVID unfolds, as all of our social justice, justice movements unfold, I'd love to invite you back to talk policy, man. Like this is, this is am right here so i really appreciate it absolutely anytime anytime for family so i am grateful to be here i'm excited for what's next for civic eagle our team we have an amazing team of, of, of 12 innovators from around this country that believe in a democracy for all and so we are committed to making sure that we continue to build intelligence tools at all levels of government that be able to allow for people to have access to policies that are 
pretty much driving their lives. So thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve. And special thanks to Sean Tara for joining us today. Next week, we'll be joined by Krista Trout Edwards, Executive Director for the Calhoun County Land Bank Authority. We'll discuss the role of land banks in addressing housing issues emanating from COVID and social justice movements.